This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to today's Property Patter, which is looking at property ownership in the context of relationships. The pressures of the pandemic have seen many people cohabiting more quickly, as well as more breakdowns in relationships. It's easy to drift into complicated territory when it comes to property arrangements between a couple. And unfortunately, we deal with these complications fairly regularly in the Charles Russell Speechley's team. To share some of the key points around these complications, I have with me today, Emily Borrowdale of our family team and Richard Flindley of our real estate disputes team. Welcome both. Nice to see you. Emily, when it comes to property, both in terms of ownership and occupation, Does it make any difference if you're not married? Well, as you've just said, we've seen a real increase in issues of this nature, particularly following the COVID pandemic, because people are slipping into living arrangements where they may ordinarily have waited for some time. And I think how you hold your property is often lost um, and it's not an immediate consideration that there is a broad misconception that if you live together for a long period of time, then you have an automatic right to a property interest. That's a common law spouse and um, there is no such thing. And that's the point that I really want to emphasize because people can be married for five, 10, 15, 20 years and exit that relationship with nothing. Um, and it's an extremely complicated and difficult legal situation to find yourself in, very expensive. Often people don't have the means to um, argue to the extent they would need to. So uh, no, in in summary, there is no uh, legal right if you are not married to the property owned by the other party. I wanted to uh, just add from a property perspective, a specific property perspective, um, that uh, you know, quite often uh, we see scenarios where uh, either uh, one or other of the partners um, is not named on the title. And obviously that creates the sort of difficulties that Emily was just alluding to. But even when both are named on the title, that can create its own um, particular intricacies. Uh, so, for example, um, quite often you'll see a scenario where where parties are named as joint tenants as on, on the ownership. And, and that obviously creates uh, it, it, its own sort of other form of security in a, in, a, in a certain sense, in that you then start with a position of saying, well, there's sort of some 50-50 ownership happening there. Alternatively, you might have a scenario in which you've got some beneficial tenants in common, and that's the alternative form, really, of joint ownership. And that, that itself uh, can throw up quite a lot of difficulties where there's no real clear agreement as to uh, in what shares that's being held. And it may well be um, that, that it is in, intended for that to uh, follow on a 50-50 basis. It might be something else. And, and it just creates could create quite a lot of uncertainty surrounding this entire issue. Yes, that's definitely true. We definitely see a lot of uncertainty um, when it comes to the, the fallout after a relationship ends. Going back to the start of a relationship, I mean, if you were going to live with somebody, what should you think about doing insofar as the property is concerned, both to protect your interest if you own the property outright um, or perhaps to protect any money you put into the property if you don't own the property? Yeah I mean I think um, I'll take the lead on that to start Um, but the certainly one of the great issues uh, that we see with this is the lack of documentation surrounding exactly what was intended at the very beginning. Now if that's a sole ownership 
uh, issue rather than joint and it was always intended to be sold then it should be made clear that that's what was always intended um, so there should be some form of agreement that deals with it however if there's going to be uh, some form of joint arrangement then the parties really need to think at the very earliest stage how is this going to um, work its way through the life of our relationship together are we going to be talking about a joint tenancy um, as a just discussed a few moments ago where we've had that that 50 50 split are we going to be talking about uh, tenancies in common where there might be unequal shares depending on who pays more or less into um, the the initial purchase um, these are things that really need to be thought about and need to be embodied in a declaration of trust where where that situation applies um, you know there is the technical possibility to use uh, the standard transfer form, so the TR1 form that we use to transfer property from one person to another, to create that declaration of trust. And it's true that that can happen. Uh, but one of the problems with it is that too frequently uh, it's not filled out fully enough so that it's too vague as to exactly what was intended. And there was all sorts of issues that you might want to cover off. Um, that aren't covered off automatically in a TR1 and need a proper declaration of trust. Some of the things that um, I have in mind um, are things like, what do you do about mortgage funds? You know, the, the expectation would be that the mortgage is paid off first and then the funds are split, the balance is split between, between the parties afterwards. But how are you going to deal with that split? Who's going to get what out of that split? Um, you know, who's going to be liable for mortgage payments and general bills? Uh, is either party being given a guaranteed minimum return because they put in a specific large lump sum at the very out outset that they want to make sure that at the very least their share or their original contribution is reflected in, in the share that comes back. We also need to think about what happens when the property is sold. You know, how are the uh, ongoing contributions reflected within that sale process? You know, it's all well and good parties putting you know, the, the sums that they put up at the very outset, but then what happens if one party's paying all of the bills and, and the mortgage payments? How's that going to be reflected when it comes to sale? And then, you know, obviously we don't want to be thinking about the end of the relationship when we're right at the beginning uh, and thinking about buying property together. But realistically, it does need to be of some thought process that goes into that in, a, in an unmarried cohabitation uh, situation because we're going to have to think about, well, is there going to be a scenario in which in the event of the worst happening and, and there being breakdown, that one party might want to be able to buy the other one out? In which case, that needs to go in the declaration to make sure that that's clear. And then the final point for me uh, uh, is really just about investment property. It's quite common that we talk about declarations of trust when, um, when we're dealing with um, you know, the scenario of the the family home in that sense, that the home in which the, the, the partners live. Um, but what about if they also buy investment property as part of the overall process? Um, how's that going to be dealt with? Uh, what terms are going to apply to that trust? When will it be, when will it be considered as an end? Because that can be quite a difficult thing when bringing uh, legal proceedings or contemplating legal proceedings, having to try to uh, sort of unpick investment property can be quite complex. Absolutely. And I would just add to that as well, that there is another sort of common misconception that we see a lot is people tend to confuse uh, sort of property valuations at the point of purchase as opposed to the point of sale. And they may think that it's it's limited to the contributions that were made on the date of the property being bought. Now, obviously, if the property was bought years ago, 
it's very likely it will have increased in value substantially. Um, the second point I just wanted to raise was, again, a bit of a morbid thought, but we always have to think about what happens on death. And uh, if a property ownership is not properly documented, um, or if someone has lived in a property for a long time as part of a cohabiting relationship, and their partner dies, they shouldn't assume that that property will pass automatically to them. It, it absolutely won't. Um, and they are likely to have to go through the courts for some sort of formal support under the Inheritance Act. Yes, that's a really good point, actually. That's the thing. It's not always the things you think, you know, couldn't possibly happen. We couldn't possibly split up, but it's those things you're not anticipating. You're absolutely right, Richard, as well, about the lack of documents. It's perhaps unsurprising sometimes in these situations that people haven't got around to documenting things. I mean, Emily, obviously also we're talking about, you know, the perfect scenario before you buy a place together. You know, perhaps there is some more natural discussion at that point, you know, particularly if you're using a solicitor to buy the house, you know, and, and so the they will often ask, you know, how do you want to hold the property and things? So it may well come up. But of course, sometimes things change after a property has been initially purchased, particularly if parties don't decide to live together until later on. Um, so if you're going to live in someone else's house and perhaps, uh, you know, another thing we see quite often is you make a substantial payment or contribution towards it. I mean, very often it's things like paying for an extension or a loft conversion or, um, you know, in the current climate, you know, perhaps paying a mortgage if your partner loses his or her job. Um, you know, what happens then and, and what can people do to protect themselves? Well, I think this follows on quite neatly from, from what Richard was saying. And if if you are in a situation whereby one property, one party owns the property outright and the other party is making contributions which are significant, the first thing they need to be thinking of is every single transaction, everything, every agreement between them needs to be recorded in writing as a minimum. That's really, really important because it means that later down the line, if there is a separation, they can go back and rely on that written agreement between them. It also reduces the angst and stress of going back and having that argument, which can be very expensive at a, at a later date, about whether or not there was an agreement. Um, cohabitation agreements are very useful in this regard because whilst you can't, they're not entirely enforceable, but they are very useful guiding points. And you can clearly record in those agreements things like mortgage contributions, payments towards extensions, um, any sort of significant capital contribution that you make. And I always tell my clients that even if they may think they might bulk at the cost of a cohabitation agreement, which could be anything between sort of two and five thousand pounds, the cost of arguing about that in litigation at a later date will, will inevitably be more expensive. So it's definitely a cost worth making. Yeah, I mean, I think that was that would be the point that I would uh, I would add really is is just that uh, the alternative scenario to agreeing things up front and having a, a sensible agreement in place inevitably becomes potential litigation. Um, and then you're starting to argue, particularly if in this scenario where you're moving into somebody else's house and you may have been making all sorts of payments for all sorts of things whilst you live there. Yeah, you're then having to try to argue that in some way or shape or form you've been promised some form of interest in the property. That can be incredibly difficult to actually overcome, um, evidentially, just in terms of trying to get the, the evidence to, to, to prove this issue. Um, but just on, on a certainty issue, it just becomes very, very difficult to, to then be able to clearly say, yes, I have an interest in this property and this is what it is um, without going to the court and trying to prove the point um, and spending a lot of money without a particularly certain result. 
Yeah, so we often see these emails, don't we, that have been sort of exchanged. And and you can, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and being a lawyer, you can see that, you know, someone may think they've confirmed something, but perhaps it hasn't been taken that way by the other party. And there's a, you know, a misunderstanding, actually, you know, cross of emails that just doesn't actually make sense. And as you say, then you're Try, trying to pull out a common intention from that um, can be very difficult. And, you know, and I speak, you know, with experience, I had, um, you know, a declaration of trust when I bought a property with a former partner, and I was extremely grateful to have it in place when the relationship fell apart. You know, uh, it was one less thing to argue about, that's for sure. Uh, and there was clarity about, you know, what, what had been agreed. And I think in the heat of an immediate breakdown of a relationship, it's it's very difficult, um, you know, to to discuss these things rationally sometimes but what happens you know what does happen if you don't have a clear agreement uh, about who owns what um uh, you know often people do find themselves in that position um what happens then well if we just compare what would happen if you were married so after the breakdown of a marriage even if it's one two years or 20 years the starting point is that the matrimonial home and that's really what we're going to be talking about here because we're looking at property People normally have one property and that comprises the, the sort of main portion of their, their assets. On the breakdown of a marriage, that would be considered to be divided equally, regardless of the contributions made to purchasing that property. And we need to be very clear with our clients because often they may say, well, I, I bought that property five years before we were married or my partner's not made any contribution at all in the past 10 years and they haven't worked. So how is it right that they have a 50% share to that property? But that the legislation is drafted to do exactly that, to protect both parties. And so that does afford that level of protection, which is reassuring and helpful to people when they're going through that very difficult early stage of coming to terms at the end of their marriage. If we compare that to what happens where a couple break up after 20 years and they're not married, Again, we're back into this situation of being entirely evidence-based about what contributions were made, about the fact that they may have to apply under um, very difficult and knotty legislation, which is expensive, costly, timely, um, and is not guaranteed to give them anywhere near the same amount of, of financial support to meet their needs. So that is why, really, if you're not going to if you're not going to go through um, the sort of formal process for marriage, then you need to be thinking about protecting yourself with a capitation agreement, um, written evidence, uh, even having a will is very important. Any sort of formal documentation that you that you can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, say from our perspective, when we're looking at cases like this, um, and there aren't agreements in place or the agreements that are in place are not necessarily the best quality that then just really leads us with the difficulty of potential litigation and what it is that the court's actually able to, to order um, you know I, I mentioned earlier on when I was talking about declarations of trust um, that one of the one of the things that uh, we would look out for is the possibility that one party or the other on on breakdown might wish to buy the other out um, that's not something that the court is able just to order on an order for sale um, in wrapping up this sort of a situation. And so you know, if parties want to be able to achieve that, then they need to make sure they've got in there and got their agreements um, sorted out and uh, that, that govern these issues. The other thing, of course, we talked a little about unequal um, shares uh, in terms of beneficial ownership. If there is no document 
that actually clearly sets out what those unequal shares are going to be, then we still end up falling back to the Stack and Dowden rebuttable presumption of 50-50 beneficial ownership. Yes, it can be rebutted, but then you have to go through an entire evidential exercise, as uh, as Emily was just describing, in being able to prove that. And even if you can do that, it doesn't necessarily mean the court's going to agree that the 50-50 the, the starting point should be parted from. So I think the, the, the message really here is that if you don't have a clear agreement, yes, there are things that can be done. Yes, there are options that you can look at in terms of legal approach and legal enforcement, but, uh, but it does create a much more expensive and uncertain picture. Yes, that's the problem. It's the uncertainty, isn't it? Um, you know, once you do go to court, you're, you know, it's really hard to predict how a how a judge is going to see the evidence. Uh, I remember doing a case once we had stacks and stacks of evidence to say that, you know, that wouldn't have been the deceased's intention. Um, but, uh, you know, there was unfortunately a... Uh, a line in the witness evidence where um, the husband said, "What was mine? What was her, mine was hers. What was hers was hers, and and that was it. And that was the finding. You know, one line of the witness evidence, you know, basically meant that that the house was lost. Um, so it's yeah, it is that uncertainty that we're trying to hopefully avoid, isn't it? Um, and of course, these issues don't just arise in the context of romantic relationships. I mean, what happens, again, I get asked about this quite a lot. What happens if you're a parent and you want to help one of your children buy a house um, and perhaps, you know, but, but nonetheless still protect, you know, your interest, their interest? Um, Richard, what, you know, what would you suggest in those circumstances? Well, again, um, I think it follows on from the general theme of today, and it's one of documentation. We need to document what it is that's actually happening. It, what, what, what was intended is, is the help that's being provided going to be a gift, or is it going to be a loan? And if it's going to be a, a, a loan, how's that loan going to be repaid? You know, do, do the parents want to be charging some form of interest on that loan? Um, and if so, what rates should be paid? How is it going to be repaid when it comes to presumably sale of sale of the property in the future or potential refinance? You know, that all needs to be thought through and worked out to make sure that the that that, that, that payment does actually uh, reflect what was intended at the beginning and doesn't become something else. If there's a declaration of trust, then obviously that also needs to be uh, taken into account as for, as regards any advance from a parent to either owner of, of the property or a sole owner of the property. Uh, and whose share does it relate to? Does it, you know, does it, is it going to relate to both parts of the property ownership? Is it just one part of the property ownership? Um, and when it comes to repayment, is that a joint repayment or is it just a, a, a one party or another party repayment? All those sorts of things need to be need to really be grappled with to make sure that we don't end up in a scenario, um, irrespective of what we've talked about in terms of litigation, where you're then having yet more litigation about uh, how that, that payment was originally made, what was it, what it was designed to be and who's got the liability for any repayment. I just wanted to add there as well. Um, that if you have a situation whereby a parent makes a gift to a child and that child then goes on to cohabit with somebody and they then go on to get married, um, we need to be careful that if the intention is for that gift to remain as a gift to one party and not the other party on marriage, then that should be probably recorded in a prenup, prenuptial agreement, uh, which, which you can do. 
um, because otherwise on marriage, the gift or loan sort of th that point falls away, really. And courts take a fairly dim view of parties trying to argue that they have to repay a parent um, on divorce and that that money should be effectively deleted from the matrimonial pot. Yes, I think our listeners will definitely be getting the strong sense from this discussion that it's worth making sure there is some documentary evidence to protect your interest um, wherever there's a, a financial contribution to property. But I'm conscious that it's perhaps slightly easy for lawyers to talk about documents. Um, I, I think we tend to be perhaps a little bit more of that mindset and um, perhaps our partners are understanding of the fact that we're, we are of that mindset and, um, and understand our suggestion for documents. Um, but I think you know, we have to also recognise that it may well feel odd to the non-lawyers out there uh, to suggest a legal document to your romantic partner when you're looking to move in together. Um, what would you say, perhaps start with you, Richard, what would you say to someone who feels awkward about raising the subject? Obviously, the starting point for that is really uh, obviously understanding the fact that, yes, this is not necessarily always going to be the easiest possible conversation to broach. Um, but I, I think, you know, certainly speaking to people uh, who have been in that situation in terms of uh, being uh, cohabitees uh, and looking at their future together, uh, I've tried to encourage uh, sensible conversations to say, well, at the very outset of the process of, of, of buying the property, uh, that we're not married, let's just make sure that this is all sort of tied up for, for everyone's benefit. It's not because trying to hit you over the head with an agreement that's sort of saying you must do this and you must do what I want. It's more just to make sure that we're, we're completely on board with, with, with what's happening for the benefit of, yes, our property ownership, but actually for the benefit of our wider relationship as well, because then at least that's not something that's going to cause us a problem in the future would be my, would be my take on it. I don't know, um, Emily, what you, what you might think. No, I completely agree. And I think as well, we have to be, Emma, you're completely right. We are fairly um, probably insensitive in the way we're talking about this. But actually, the hope, of course, is that you do these documents and then you put them in a cupboard and you never need to look at them again. Really, we just want to sort of stress that the intention of this is not to bring up issues that you wouldn't otherwise be thinking of or um, to cause acrimony at the beginning of what's meant to be a very happy time if you're moving in with your partner, of course, we recognise that. It's it's really just to simplify things. And we're also not talking about things like who's going to take the bins out, who's going to do the washing up, who's going to go to Tesco's. Those types of things, obviously, we cannot legislate for. Um, we are talking about fairly fundamental legal principles and just making sure that there are clear lines and, and clear boundaries. I like the idea of putting the washing up responsibilities in there, though. People I'm going to have a think. I'm going to have a think <laughs> about that. I am, <laughs> but I think also your point you made earlier actually is a really good one as well. It's not just about the relationship breakup. It's about unexpected things. I mean, COVID has shown us, you know, unfortunately, tragically, you know, a lot of people will have lost people in the last year that they were not expecting to lose, and particularly, obviously, these days we have a lot more let's call them complex family situations, saying to somebody that actually I think we want to be clear in case something happens to one of us about what the intention is. We don't want our families or, you know, children or whatever it may be arguing about this in the context of, um, you know, what would be a, a really difficult time already. So actually, I think if you're feeling uncomfortable about raising it and, you know, you don't want it to look like you're planning for the end of the relationship, perhaps that, you know, is is the way to do it um, because it's it can be awkward, I think. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, 
Well, thank you both um, for a really illuminating explanation of how these arrangements can work. I'm particularly interested, Emily, that you still get asked about the um, <laughs> the common law spouse thing and the rights and and all of that. So it's you know really good to simplify that and, and be clear about it, um, and also to address the complications involved. Uh, I know that you will both be happy if any of our listeners want to contact you to discuss the issues that they have in this area or may be concerned about arising in the future. So we'll put links to your contact details when we publish this podcast. As I said earlier, from my own personal experience, I really would recommend getting advice in advance of purchasing or cohabiting so that you can hopefully then start the next chapter in your relationship with a clear understanding between you on financial matters and without needing to worry about what happens if things go wrong in the future. So best of luck to all of our listeners. Thank you to you both and stay safe all. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.